Our passage this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1, 1 to 10. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man will I boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Though I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, we um, don't like to be weak. We want to be, we want to be strong, but we see here that this is how that your power is revealed in us. So, Father, we pray that we would be we would open up our hearts to your word and your truth. And we pray now for Tom that your Holy Spirit would speak through him and that you will bless us. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. I'm sure that. Uh, some of you in this room have met at least one professing Christian in your life who has told you about some kind of extraordinary, transcendent encounter of God that changed their life forever. And they expected you to be as excited about that encounter as they were. Uh, years ago, Debbie and I uh, counseled a, a middle-aged woman from our neighborhood whose marriage wasn't doing so well. Uh, she wasn't from this church. She said that she needed help, but she talked a lot more than she listened. Uh, she went on and on about a vision of Jesus that she said she had had years earlier. And I honestly don't recall much detail about uh, her description of what she saw and heard. Uh, it was I do remember it was kind of obscure. Uh, and there really, there really wasn't any significant content to this encounter or this vision. Uh, so, you know, we didn't have much opportunity to test it with Scripture or to advise her uh, in regard to that vision. We just kind of had to let her 
do her thing and talk about it. What I do remember vividly from that conversation is that she, she didn't have a very high view of the Bible. Uh, she assigned far more value to that one extraordinary experience than she did to anything that we had to say to her from the Word of God to try to help her in her marriage relationship. So needless to say, very little was accomplished in that meeting. I believe Paul was dealing with something along those lines when it came to the, the spiritual priorities of the Corinthian saints. Back in 1 Corinthians, we saw that the saints in Corinth put a very, very high view on, on individual transcendent experience of God. And we see that especially in the priority that they placed on the spiritual gift of tongues. They clearly saw tongues as the preeminent gift. It was the one that everybody should have, and it was better than all the others. Uh, there are entire denominations today that hold to that view. But in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul put tongues at or near the bottom of two separate lists of spiritual gifts. And then in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he started the chapter by saying, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if that wasn't enough to sort out the Corinthians' prioritization of the spiritual gifts, the chapter right after that one, 1 Corinthians 14, should have left no doubt. Because in that chapter, Paul declares unambiguously that the goal that must guide the activity of every believer when we gather together to worship is the building up of the church, not the individual. And for that, that very reason, in 1 Corinthians 14.19, Paul says, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. It's pretty clear, right? Speaking in a heavenly language that others cannot understand might be great for you, but it is a low-value proposition when it comes to building up the church of Jesus Christ. But what if you received the vision of heaven? Surely you need to talk about that, right? If God gave you a personal tour of heaven, or, or even just a glimpse, well, that would have to be something that you shared with your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? I mean, what, what could encourage your fellow believers more than having a conversation with someone who actually got to see what awaits us when we, when we pass out of this mortal life under the curse. Well, that's at least part of what the Apostle John got to share with the church in his astonishing description of the ascended and glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1 and of the holy city, the heavenly city, New Jerusalem in chapters 21 and 22. In our day, there is no shortage of published personal accounts from people who claim to have had near-death experiences or other experiences that involved previews of heaven. And in some case, of hell. Some cases of hell. And when I searched for, uh, on Amazon for books about visions of heaven, it came back with more than 500 titles. And 
hundreds of those were from people who claimed to have had just such an experience, to have actually beheld heaven. Uh, some of them either just in the spirit and others out of the body. It's like they, they traveled there. They were there. It wasn't just a vision. It was a, a visit. Some of those books, of course, have been made into popular movies. Here in 2 Corinthians 12, we find a first-hand personal account of just such an event. But friends, if you're expecting Paul's vision of heaven to be the focus of this passage, you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> On the other hand, if you're expecting Paul to tell you something that will equip and empower you to be mightily and even miraculously used by God when you are at your weakest, even in the midst of the most painful afflictions and fiercest opposition that you encounter in this life, then you will not be disappointed because that's what this passage sets before us. Paul begins chapter 12 with uh, a point that he raised previously in the last couple of chapters of the letter. He says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. Now, one thing that you should understand about the way Paul uses that word boasting is that where most people would use it to talk about, to, to talk about prideful or arrogant declarations about themselves, Paul is so sensitive, Paul is so sensitive to the fact that, that, that our focus is on Christ that any discussion at all about himself, he sees as boasting. He treats it as if it's boasting. There is a legitimate boast, biblically, and that is to boast in the things that are attributed to God, to boast in the things, even, even to boast in the confidence that we have in our usefulness because of Christ in us. That's a legitimate boast. And Paul does, he goes to that boast many times in First and Second Corinthians. But we need to understand when he says boasting is necessary, though not profitable, he's, he's again saying, you know, for me to talk about myself, that is not optimal in any way. That's not the best way to proceed. So, but he said it's necessary. Well, it was necessary because of, the, because of the extravagant boasts of the false prophets who were trying to usurp Paul's place as God's appointed apostle to the Gentiles. They were bent on marginalizing Paul and claiming his apostolic authority for themselves. But Paul made sure that even though it was necessary for him to defend his own ministry, everything he said about himself exalted Christ and not Paul. We've seen that over and over and over. And of course, this is the same Paul who says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, pointing back to Jeremiah. Having delivered his disclaimer about boasting, Paul then goes in a direction that his readers were surely not expecting. In verse 1, he says, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. What Paul has in mind, as we find out here, is a transcendent experience to beat all transcendent experiences claimed by his detractors. Even though he uses only the third person as he speaks about this man in Christ whom he knew, who had this otherworldly experience, it becomes clear as he proceeds through the passage that he's talking about himself. Again, he's so reluctant 
to draw attention to himself that he speaks of the, the man who had this vision in the third person. That extraordinary event, he says, happened 14 years earlier. Before, that was before any of Paul's missionary journeys. That was before any of these churches had been planted. The fact that Paul speaks in the plural here of visions and revelations in, in verse 1, and then again of revelations in verse 7, in the plural, leads me to conclude that he's talking about more than just one event. We know that Paul's first personal encounter with the ascended Jesus happened the day that he was saved, right? He was walking on a road from Jerusalem to Damascus with, with papers in hand to give him authority to arrest Christians in Damascus and bring them back to be tried before the same Sanhedrin, the same court that had demanded the execution, the crucifixion of Jesus. And he wanted those Christians dead. But as he was walking along that road, of course, the Lord Jesus blinded him to make him see. The Lord appeared to him. said, Paul, said Saul, Saul, that was his name back then. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he, he gave, as I said before, he gave Paul a heart transplant right then and there. And Paul was never the same. That personal encounter with the resurrected Christ resulted in a radical transformation of Saul, of Paul, in all respects. And, and this is important. It was a transformation to which all who knew him could readily attest. That encounter is recorded in Acts 9. Paul talks about it again in his defense before the Sanhedrin in Acts 22, and yet again before King Agrippa in Acts 26. But based on what he says here and in those other passages, it's pretty clear and in other passages even besides those, it's pretty clear that Jesus appeared to Paul on more than one occasion. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells us that at some early point in his life as a child of God, Jesus actually revealed directly to Paul the content of the gospel that Jesus had commissioned him to preach throughout the Roman Empire. Paul says, Galatians 1.9, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Personally, I believe Paul had several encounters with the resurrected and ascended Christ as Jesus personally mentored Paul to prepare him for his ministry. Paul declared that that, that gospel that Jesus gave to him is the gospel and anyone who brings any other gospel is accursed. Now, I'm not alone again in believing that that this happened, that these encounters with Christ happened more than once. Uh, but it isn't any of those instructive encounters that Paul is describing here. Before we look at his account of this extraordinary event, I want to pose a simple question. How long is Paul's actual description of what he saw and heard in this passage when he was transported to paradise? 
There's the two-verse wind-up before the pitch, but the sum total of Paul's actual description of this transcendent experience is in just one verse. Here are both the wind-up and the pitch in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 2-4. through I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Guys, that's it. That's the whole account of his view into heaven. Paul devotes only one verse to actually telling us what happened when he was caught up into paradise. So if we're hoping for an enhanced understanding of what heaven's going to be like, this passage isn't going to help us very much. And guys, that ends up being critically important to the real point that Paul is making in this passage. Before we get to that central point, let's consider what Paul does tell us about this amazing experience. He says he was caught up to the third heaven. By the way, that's the same Greek word that's used in reference to what we call the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. But he cannot tell us whether he was transported bodily, which we will be at, uh, in the catching up in 1 Thess 4, whether he was transported bodily or only in the spirit because he doesn't know the answer to that question. Twice he says, I don't know, God knows. As for what he means by the third heaven, the only other bit of information he gives us is that it's the same place as paradise. In Luke 24, Jesus told the thief on the cross beside him who had believed in him that he would be with Jesus that very day in paradise. So one thing we know about paradise is that Jesus is there. We know from passages like 1 Kings chapter 8 and Nehemiah 9.6 that there is such a thing as the heaven of heavens, or the highest heaven, which is inhabited by God, but cannot contain or encompass God, because God is omnipresent. So the place Paul is talking about would seem to be that place, the place that God actually calls his dwelling place, even though he's not contained by it. But that's where he lives. Okay. But Paul says not one single word about what he saw in that place. Not one single word. And the only thing he tells us about what he heard is that he can't tell us. Inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So why is he telling us this at all? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. We should note that there is no evidence that Paul ever spoke or wrote about this experience of being taken up into heaven outside of this passage. But he says it happened 14 years earlier. Imagine that. 14 years of silence about an event that most of us wouldn't be able to stop talking about. Why is that? Even the most astonishing experiences that have been related by professing Christians to me face to face have never come close to the kind of otherworldly experience that Paul had here. But one of the most crucial lessons that you and I need to come away with from this passage is that it is not exceptional 
individual encounters of God that God uses to equip His church to do the work of Christ in the world. It is instead that which every believer shares together in common with our fellow saints. His indwelling spirit, His word, the gifts and experiences that the Spirit gives to individual believers for the common good. In other words, things that we can explain and share with our brothers and sisters, and especially things that they can test with the Word of God. I'll, this is a little bit of an aside, but i got to tell you, God never expected any human being to buy the claim that something came from Him unless He proved it. That applied to his word through the prophets, to his word through the apostles, certainly to everything that he said through Jesus. And some people, I've heard people, some people say, well, you know, like Jeremiah didn't do miracles. Oh, really? <laughs> Hananiah, this false prophet, came along and said, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar would be removed from Judah in two years. And by the miraculous knowledge given to him by God, Jeremiah said, no, it's going to be 70 years and Hananiah, you'll be dead this year. A few months later, Hananiah was dead and Judah was in captivity for 70 years. That's a miracle. That's an attestation. All right, enough of the, the aside. Don't let anyone tell you that you are supposed to buy what they say they are peddling from God unless God proves it. Unless He attests to it. All right. It will not be your individual mountaintop experience that God uses to build up His church. It will be the things that you have received from God that can also be received by your brothers and sisters in Christ. So after giving us His very cryptic description of being taken up into heaven, Paul simply says he's not going to boast about it. Speaking again in the third person, he says, on behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I would not be foolish, for I am speaking the truth. I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this. And listen to this. Listen to this. I refrain from this so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. That's a wonderful standard that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. It seems pretty self-evident that the usurpers that Paul exposes as false prophets had been quick to boast of transcendent spiritual experiences that they had supposedly had, experiences that they could not possibly prove and that nobody had any way to corroborate. Yet they were treating these claims of such experiences as Compelling proof of their apostolic authority. So Paul took just a moment to point out to the saints at Corinth that God had given him an experience that made the claims of those detractors look like child's play. But notice carefully what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. He says if he did choose to boast further about this unparalleled, this man who had this unparalleled vision, he would be justified in doing so because it actually happened. Whereas his things his detractors are claiming didn't. But he chooses not to do so. And again, I point out the reason. So that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. 
That is a takeaway that we must not miss. If you or I are going to appeal to an experience that we've had in the hope that that experience will somehow draw others to Christ or encourage believers in Christ, we need to be very sure that the fruit, the fruit of that experience is visible to other people. That's what Paul did in Galatians 1. He contrasted the stark difference between the before and after of his conversion in Galatians 1, of his saving encounter with Jesus. He didn't provide a bunch of details about the encounter. He talked about the radical change that had occurred in his heart and in his life, a change which other people started talking about right after Paul got saved. Isn't this the guy that was arresting people in Damascus? Look at him now! What happened here? That's what he did in Acts 22 when he testified before the Sanhedrin. And in Acts 26 when he testified before King Agrippa. He gave account of his unparalleled meeting with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. But he did not rely on any sensational narrative of the, of the event. He knew that the one and only thing that would make that account credible was the radical transformation of life that, him, that Jesus had brought about in him. So that's what he talked about. Beloved, personal testimonies are very useful to God when they are accompanied, accompanied by transformed lives. And when they are not, you might as well just zip it. But the most indispensable element of our usefulness to God is the one that Paul begins talking about in verse 7. And it is that great usefulness to God depends on the weakness of His instruments, not on their strengths. I use the word depends on very intentionally. The usefulness of God's instruments, that's you and me, depends on the weakness of the instrument, not on the strength of the instrument. And that's where Paul takes us and keeps us for the remainder of this marvelous passage. In verses 7 through 9, he says, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. I have this text to speech app that I use when I'm working through my notes, and it kept saying, to buffet me. Just had to share that with you. <laughs> to, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. And then he says, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, this is where we find the reason that Paul talked about the vision. It was so that he could get to this point. And that is that, that the vision had the potential to be really a big problem for him. And God did something to fix that. Paul talked about his vision of heaven just enough so that we would understand why it could have created a kind of arrogance in him that would have disqualified him from his appointed ministry. And just so that we would understand 
how God nipped the possibility of that arrogance in the bud. In verse 7, it becomes very apparent that the visions and revelations that he had just talked about were his own. That's why God had to give him this thorn. But they were so marvelous, they were so otherworldly, so set apart from the mundane things of this earth that it would have been very, very easy for Paul to see himself as special for having been given such a vision. Such an extraordinary encounter of God. So God gave him something else to go along with the visions and revelations. He gave him a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan. Now there's been all kinds of speculation about what kind of affliction this was. I'm not even going to give you the list. Because Paul doesn't. Rather than telling us what it was, Paul uses the analogy of a thorn that's become embedded in his flesh and it's, it's still there and it's not going away. It's festering. <laughs> I believe, as do many others, that Paul's reason for not being specific about the kind of affliction at issue here was to avoid limiting how the saints would apply the powerful principle that he's setting before us. He doesn't want anyone to say, well, I'm glad I don't have that problem, so I don't have to listen anymore. He wants the saints to recognize that the principle here applies in every kind of weakness that God allows or engineers in our lives. And in fact, we don't even have to know which it is, whether God allowed it or engineered it in order for God to use it. It's amazing how much Christians agonize over sorting out that issue, and God most of the time doesn't tell us. He's sovereign in any case. This is borne out, this, the fact that Paul is intending to apply this very broadly is borne out in verse 10 when he, he speaks of the same lesson applying to weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. Even though Paul identifies the affliction as a messenger of Satan, he clearly does not assign the prime cause of this affliction to the devil. He recognizes that the affliction is God's doing. God did this to him. Now we know from reading the book of Job, of course, that God, that Satan can't do anything without God's permission. It's important to remember that. All of the most mightily used prophets of God and ambassadors of Christ have understood by God's grace that God is the only one who is sovereign over all calamity and all well-being, over every kind of curse and every kind of blessing. There is nothing that happens in God's creation over which He is not 100% sovereign. No surprises. Every created person and every created thing will never be more than an instrument of blessing or curse in the hands of God because God is the source and He's the only source. This passage gives us two purposes for which God afflicted Paul with this thorn in the flesh. To humble him and to make him useful. To keep him, that humble him to keep him from being exalted, from exalting himself, and then to make him useful. Power is perfected in weakness. And then he says that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
That's the ultimate goal. We must not miss or minimize the fact that Paul entreated the Lord three times to remove this affliction from him. The word entreat means to appeal most earnestly. It's very clear that this affliction was painful and sustained over a long period of time. And it's clear that Paul lifted up this this three-time request to God with great earnestness, with all his heart. We must not conclude that Paul violated God's will in any way by making that request three times. There is nothing in God's Word that should ever make a child of God feel guilty for asking our Father to cure an illness or to heal a wound or to end a persecution or to bring an end to any other kind of hardship that we face in this life. We have God's promise that He intends to do that when all is said and done. He will heal all our diseases. He will end all our afflictions. He will remove the curse. He will destroy the curse. And we will never experience it again. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain in the place that He has prepared for us. We know that this delights God. So it's not a bad thing to ask God for the short-term manifestations of that intent. But in this case, God's answer to Paul was no. And we must always be willing to accept that answer from the God who does all things well. Many Christians equate believing prayer with name it and claim it prayer. They insist that if you leave any room in your prayers for God to say no, you're not really praying with faith. But on the night before He was crucified in our place, the perfect man made this earnest appeal to His Father. Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Yet not My will, but Your will be done. That's our perfect template, beloved, for every request that we make of God. We ask believing, not doubting, that our Father is able to do as we have asked. While at the same time trusting that His will, not ours, must prevail. Must determine the outcome of our request. And we ask knowing that His will always accomplishes His greatest glory and thus our greatest good. When the Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, those are not mutually exclusive in any way because it is in the glorification of God that we have the greatest pleasure as the children of God. Pleasure in Him and pleasure in all that He gives to us. When we, when we treat it with His glory as the purpose. In this case, Paul was beset by an affliction that his own senses and his own logic told him was undesirable. This man who longed to serve his Savior was convinced that this affliction was hindering his affection for Christ, not helping it. And the way we know that is by God's answer to him. God knew what Paul didn't, so God said no. It was not a cold or uncaring no. It never is. 
when it comes from God to his beloved children. It was no from the lover of Paul's soul who sent his one and only son to die for sinners like Paul and like you and me. And interesting, the word no was not actually in God's answer. The no came in the form of one of those precious and magnificent promises that Peter talks about in first in second Peter chapter one. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God's answer to Paul is the reason, again, that I'm convinced that he saw this affliction not merely as a personal hardship, but as a hindrance to his usefulness to God. God's answer spoke directly to Paul's desire to be mightily used by his Redeemer. God told them how that would happen through his weakness. God said, my grace is sufficient for you for powers perfected in weakness. God had been lovingly and faithfully teaching Paul something that every one of us needs to know. By the time Paul wrote these words, he had already come to embrace the answer from God that he records here. That answer colors everything that he has said in previous chapters of this great epistle. I think maybe some of us haven't embraced this yet. So let's look at a couple of those verses. Chapter 2, verse 14. After telling about a time when Paul himself had no rest in his spirit, fearing that something terrible had happened to his beloved spiritual son Titus, Paul said, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. He's saying God makes us useful even when we are despondent. Chapter 3, verses 4-6, through six, Paul had written, And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul knew that he was being used by God because God was his only sufficiency and all the sufficiency he would ever need. And then in chapter 4, verses 6-10, through 10, he said, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts Listen, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How? Through jars of clay. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Now Paul records words that God had spoken to him before he wrote all of those things. My grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness the second part of that twofold promise power is perfected in weakness had become every bit as precious to Paul as the first in chapter 11 of this letter Paul had laid out a long list of the things he had suffered on Christ's behalf and the pinnacle of that list of hardships was the suffering that he shared with his fellow saints in 11.29, he said, Who is weak without my being weak? And he's talking about his brothers and sisters in Christ. 
In the next verse, verse 30, he said, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. And now he shares the promise of God that that had brought about that understanding. That had sustained him in his own weakness and in his share in the weaknesses of all the saints. Power is perfected, completed, made full in weakness. Clay jars are fragile. They are easily cracked. They are easily chipped. They are easily broken. But the stark contrast between the fragility of these jars of clay and the unassailable strength of that with which God has filled them draws all the attention to the contents and not to the jars. I mentioned several weeks ago that even these days, the display cases found in the world's most valuable, most, most extravagant jewelry stores are drab. They are not ornate. Look it up. Look online. Look at Tiffany's. Look at, look at the display cases. You will not be impressed. The cases and the fixtures and the props that hold that very expensive jewelry are deliberately constructed not to draw attention to themselves so that the customer's eye will be fixed entirely on the very valuable jewelry and willing to spend a lot of money on it. Beloved, we are the display cases for the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You and I. If we were exceptional and extraordinary in ourselves, people might set their attention and their affection on us. But God sees to it that we are neither exceptional nor extraordinary. Anytime we think we are, He humbles us. That plainness extends also to our power. It is not God's way to make His children powerful in ourselves but rather to make us weak in ourselves. That is by design. That we are weak. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power may clearly be of God and not from ourselves. See, it's not rocket science. It makes perfect sense. Doesn't it? If Christ is the one whose glory matters. How does God teach us to delight in our weaknesses? Well, He has to first convince us that we're weak. He must show us that we are weak in ourselves. And that happens, how does that happen? Through humbling. And beloved, in case you haven't figured this out yet, the way that humbling generally happens in a human being is through humiliation. It doesn't come naturally. We are to desire God's humbling of His instruments. And humbling is generally the result of humiliation. So that means that we we shouldn't flee from and fear humiliating experiences. That's pretty hard to digest. But it, it fits perfectly with what God is saying here. Does it not? I loathe humiliation. <laughs> especially when I'm the one being humiliated. 
but it is the fast track to a right assessment of ourselves. Imagine how different the course of our lives would be if we actually saw humiliation for Christ's sake to be a good thing. Didn't Paul say something in 1 Corinthians about how the world would see us as fools because we cling to the wisdom and power of God which is found in the word of the cross? Anybody see that happening these days? Yeah. We shouldn't run from that. We shouldn't cling to to cultural acceptability or respect. We should delight in the fact that we share in the reproaches of our God like our Savior did. I'm often asked to be sure that I include a clear element of application in every message. Uh, I'm happy to say I didn't even have to think very, very long at all to come up with one here because Paul gives it to us in verse 10 just straight out. He says, therefore, I am well pleased with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying, I I believe what God just said, what God said to me actually years before. Now, there's a reason I I just replaced the words well content in my favorite translation with the words well pleased. There is another Greek word that means content. It's not used here. It comes from a verb that means to suffice. If you're content with a given situation or outcome, that means that you're okay with it. You consider it acceptable, adequate. But the word used here is consistently used in the New Testament with a much more positive meaning than that. Let me read just a few verses. I'm almost done. A few verses that use that same word. Colossians 1.19 Speaking of Jesus, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. All the fullness of God. Does it mean God was content to let Jesus share all His fullness? No. He was delighted. 2 Corinthians 5.8 We are of good courage and prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. The word prefer means we are well pleased to go home. 1 Thess 2.8 Having thus a fond affection for you, Paul's saying to the Thessalonian saints, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Does that sound like just contentedness? And the great one, Matthew 3.17, behold, a voice came out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's this word. Beloved, when God says no to the heartfelt request of His redeemed child, that's you and me, He doesn't do so to give us something that we can be contented with if we'll accept some lower standard of well-being than we would prefer. That's not what He's doing. He says no in order to give us something that we should be delighted to receive from the gracious and merciful hand of our loving Father. Paul's not simply saying I am content with these difficulties because they serve Jesus, so I'll put up with them. He's saying I rejoice in these difficulties because they exalt my Savior and that which exalts my Savior is my delight. Will you and I do the same? Will we be well pleased with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, 
with persecutions, with all manner of difficulties for Christ's sake, knowing that when we are weak, then we are strong in the strength of the Lord. Loving Father, we thank You for this, this right-side-up truth that, that turns this world upside down. Father, we thank You. We thank You that Your ways are not, not our ways and that You tell us what Yours are, that we might be transformed, that we might be changed, that we might, we might have an entirely different grid than this wretched and corrupt world has that we may desire the things that come from Your hand, knowing that even those things that are very, very hard, very, very painful in this life, are being worked together by You for good to everyone who loves You and is called according to Your purpose. Father, our great example is the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered the greatest injustice, injustice that ever happened in your creation in order to bring about the greatest victory that will ever be. Teach us, Father, to embrace the suffering and weakness that we endure for a time that we might display the beauty of Christ. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.